And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Welcome, everyone, to Tradcast episode 11, the first one in the new year 2016 and the first one in season two of our podcast program. Twenty sixteen promises to be a very interesting year, no doubt, and it has already started with fireworks. So January 6th was the official release, after two slight delays, of what we're calling the Big Bad Book of Bunk, the 700-page magnum opus of John Salza and Robert Sisko called True or False Pope, Refuting Sedevacantism and Other Modern Errors. It finally started shipping, and uh, of course, in the time leading up to it, the authors have been giving a number of interviews to talk about it. Now, make no mistake about this. This book, this issue, is a big deal for them. Because, in a way, the entire society of St. Pius X stands or falls with the truth or falsity of Sedevacantism, and so does the Fatima industry. Since Francis replaced Benedict XVI in the Vatican roughly three years ago, their recognize and resist position has become so patently ludicrous and the truth that Jorge Bergoglio could not possibly be a valid pope so obvious that they've had to fire off such a gigantic salvo against Sedevacantism lest their resistance empire continue to suffer serious damage. And no, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, you're not going to invest in researching, writing, and publishing 700 pages on a topic that is not that big of a deal to you. Besides, it is the Society of St. Pius X that is the publisher of the book, right? St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary Press. And the foreword was written by none other than the SSPX's superior general, Bishop Bernard Fillet. So, this is their baby, and they will do just about anything to ensure that this baby will be kept safe and warm. And so you can expect them to throw anything at us that they possibly can. So... Expect this to get ugly. Not from our side it won't, but from theirs it very well could. Now, while we're going to have to resist the temptation to respond piece by piece to everything they're going to throw at us, um, we'll respond in full and in depth later on, um, we did nonetheless publish an initial response to their accusation that we were scrambling and providing an irrational response to their coming tidal wave of a book. 
You can judge that for yourself. Our rejoinder was nothing short of devastating. And you can read it at the section of our website that is dedicated to responding to this book at trueorfalsepopes.com. That's plural, trueorfalsepopes.com. We also have our reply linked in the show notes for this episode at tradcast.org. Just look for episode 11. So anyway, January 6th came, and the timing for the book could not have been better, could not have been more providential, because that was the very day when the supposed Vicar of Christ released what can rightly be called a bomb of apostasy, a video trailer in which he announces his prayer intention for the month of January, which is, quote, that sincere dialogue among men and women of different faiths may produce the fruits of peace and justice, unquote. If you have not seen the video, this is an absolute must-see. It is a minute and a half in length only, and it shows the apostasy of the man the world believes to be the Pope of the Catholic Church. So, yeah, Francis really rained on their parade, on Salza's and Cisco's parade. <laughs> Don't you hate it when that happens? I mean, here you're trying to finally publish that big bad refutation of Sedevacantism, right? Accusing the people who hold it of heresy. And then Jorge comes along on your big day and proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that he has no faith that he thinks that religion is all a matter of opinion and that all religions are basically equal. And while he didn't say that explicitly, it is exactly the message he conveys in that video with unmistakable evidence. If you don't believe me, go to the official website and watch the video there. It's thepopevideo.org. That's thepopevideo.org. Org. And no, heresy cannot only be expressed in words. It can also be expressed in images, in gestures, in signs and signals and so forth. Now, I know there will be a lot of people listening right now thinking, that's not true. But these people are simply misinformed. What I've just said can be verified really in any Catholic theological manual or treatise before Vatican II that talks in sufficient depth about heresy as a crime or heresy as a sin. I'm going to quote only one, and that is Father Eric F. McKenzie's The Delict of Heresy in its Commission, Penalization, and Absolution. Page 35. Here's what Father McKenzie says. Quote, words are the ordinary, but not the only means of communication. Complete externalization of thought may exist in signs, acts, or omissions. Hence, Giovanni Pigi rightly states that if a person disbelieves in the real presence and, in token of this disbelief, deliberately omits to remove his hat in a Catholic church, he has completely expressed his heretical tenet and has incurred censure. Unquote. 
Which only makes sense, if you think about it. Because why should the manifestation of one's denial or doubt of Catholic dogma be restricted only to written or spoken words? Why would actions, signs, and so on not also qualify if they're clear? But anyway, Francis's video promotes horrible indifferentism in word and in images, which put Buddha, the Talmudic Shekinah, the Islamic Allah, and our Lord Jesus Christ all on the same level. Francis says in the video, quote, Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty we have for all. We are all children of God. Unquote. And this is by no means all. If you haven't seen the video, like I said, you've got to see it. There is no describing how horrific and blasphemous that video is. It's disgusting. So you've got to see it for yourself. It sends the unmistakable message that all religions are the same, that all have value, that they all lead to God, that they are all more or less good and praiseworthy, and that in any case, religious truth is not really certain anyway. It's all just a bunch of opinions, and the only thing we can really know for sure is that we're all children of God. But that's blasphemy. It's blasphemy, and it's also manifestly against Scripture, which teaches that until we're baptized and original sin is taken away from us, we are accursed. We are the children of a cursed race, children of unbelief, children of wrath, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, and even children of the devil, so to speak, as stated by St. John the Apostle in 1 John 3.10. And that goes not just for the unbaptized, but also for the baptized who are in unrepentant mortal sin. So this whopper was dropped by Francis on the very day of publication of the Salza Cisco book against Sedevacantism, and it could not have been timed better, because nothing says Vicar of Christ more eloquently than heretically denying Christ right there in front of a TV camera with a smile. And no, don't say now that, oh, but St. Peter denied Christ too. Because St. Peter wasn't Pope yet when he denied Christ, and he denied him, by the way, quite visibly out of fear, not with malice like Judas or like Francis. You know the difference, by the way? You know the difference between Francis and Judas? Judas betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Francis does it for free. That's the difference. So anyway, St. Peter didn't actually become Pope until after the resurrection, when our Lord told him, feed my sheep in John chapter 21. This was explicitly taught by the First Vatican Council, and you can verify this for yourself, in uh, Denzinger number 1822. Denzinger 1822, you can see the First Vatican Council teach that very thing, and if you don't have a copy of Denzinger, we'll provide uh, the link to that in our show notes at Tradcast.org. But now let's finally get on with what we started in Tradcast episode 9, 
where we began to critically dissect the interview with John Salza on the Trad Cat Night radio show. This interview was conducted by Eric Gajewski, who as the Eagle Commander believes himself to be the Lord's great gift to the church. And of course, Salza is talking about his book, True or False Pope, and about set of Acantism. The interview was released on October 25th, 2015, and uh, we began with our critique in Tradcast 9, so if you haven't listened to that yet, please, please do so, because there is a lot of information in that, and we'd like you to get the full picture of what Salza is saying and what our response is. Now, we're only going to respond to the more substantial and serious points Salza raises against that of Akantism, otherwise we would never finish. Okay, so we'll pick up at the 34-49-minute mark. That's 34 minutes and 49 seconds into the show. Here is John Salza. Interestingly, the state of Akantis and our Novus Ordo friends, they have something in common. Uh, they err on the scope of infallibility, even though you know both will say that the crisis started with Vatican II. Uh, the major premise is the same. What they both say is that whatever comes from or is approved by the Pope must be true and good because the Pope is infallible. That is the major premise of both you know, the conservative Catholics and the state of the contest. Seriously. Not surprisingly, John Salza sets up a straw man here. He claims that Sedevacantus exaggerate papal infallibility to the extent that everything that comes from the Pope is infallible, when that's obviously not the case. Now, interestingly enough, he does not provide an example of where Sedevacantus have claimed that, supposedly, right? Or who, like which state of Akantis have said that, but we'll, we'll let that slide. The state of Akantis position is exactly the position of the Catholic Church before Vatican II. All right? Whatever comes from the Holy See, at, at least officially, is binding upon the conscience of each Catholic. Okay? It's not infallible, but it is nevertheless binding. The refusal to draw that distinction is one of Salza's fundamental errors, right? His argument implies that unless something comes with the note of infallibility attached, we are not bound in and of itself to assent to it. And this is the error. This is false. There are countless proofs that a Catholic, especially the average Catholic in the pews, as opposed to a specially trained and commissioned theologian, which, by the way, John Salza is not, is not permitted to dissent from anything the Holy See teaches, approves, establishes, or decrees. Have a look at some very unbiased evidence for this. The best explanation for the layman is perhaps found in Canon George Smith's article published in the 1930s called Must I Believe It? We have this essay linked in our show notes at trapcast.org so you can find it there. Please take the time to read it because it is a very well-stated explanation of a Catholic's duty to submit to the Holy See. And the best part about it is that because it was written in the 1930s, it's totally unbiased, 
okay? It's untainted, if you will, by the controversy of the present day. Must I Believe It by Canon George Smith. Now, when we issue our full response to Salza's book, we will lay out all the evidence with all the quotations and citations to really prove our point, but we can't do that here because <laughs> we'd never finish. And besides, I mean, this isn't supposed to be a complete refutation anyway, but just a preliminary critical response uh, to this one interview. But what we will do right now is we will provide one very clear quote from Pope Pius Twelfth on this very issue, which uh, comes from his encyclical Humani Generis, published in 1950. And this is very applicable, so please listen closely. Quote, This sacred office of teacher in matters of faith and morals must be the proximate and universal criterion of truth, for all theologians, since to it has been entrusted by Christ our Lord the whole deposit of faith, sacred scripture, and divine tradition to be preserved, guarded, and interpreted. Unquote. So here Pope Pius Twelfth is clarifying that the papal magisterium, the sacred office of teacher he's referring to, must be the proximate and universal criterion of truth for all theologians. Got that, Mr. Salza? And if that goes for the theologian, who is specially trained and exceptionally qualified in matters of sacred theology, what does that mean for the layman? If even the theologian is not permitted to simply dismiss teaching in an encyclical or an approved liturgical rite or some other papal decree or, or writing, how much less do you think the average layman is allowed to do that? And yet that is the unstated dogma of the recognize and resist position, that you can just essentially ignore, contradict, or simply junk whatever comes from the Holy See if you think it doesn't fit the prior teaching. That's exactly what people like John Salza, Robert Sisko, John Venary, Michael Matt, and so on do on a habitual basis. But it gets better, because Pius Twelfth isn't done yet. He goes on to criticize certain modernist theologians who, believe it or not, back in his day, were using the same or at least a very similar line of argumentation as Salza and his resistance buddies, especially the SSPX, still use today. Pius Twelfth says about these dangerous theologians, quote, The popes, they assert, do not wish to pass judgment on what is a matter of dispute among theologians, so recourse must be had to the early sources, and the recent constitutions and decrees of the teaching church must be explained from the writings of the ancients. Unquote. Sound familiar? The objection that these theologians were making was that, well, this isn't a definitive or infallible decision, and this is a matter of dispute among theologians, so we don't have to listen to that. We'll just stick with tradition, we'll examine the writings of the ancients, and then we'll just go with that. We'll just set aside the more recent stuff. But Pius Twelfth immediately rejects this as unacceptable. Quote, Although these things seem well said, 
Still, they are not free from error. It is true that popes generally leave theologians free in those matters which are disputed in various ways by men of very high authority in this field. But history teaches that many matters that formerly were open to discussion no longer now admit of discussion. Nor must it be thought that what is expounded in encyclical letters does not of itself demand consent, since in writing such letters the popes do not exercise the supreme power of their teaching authority. For these matters are taught with the ordinary teaching authority of which it is true to say, He who heareth you heareth me. That's a quote from Luke 10.16. And generally what is expounded and inculcated in encyclical letters already for other reasons appertains to Catholic doctrine. But if the supreme pontiffs in their official documents purposely pass judgment on a matter up to that time under dispute, it is obvious that that matter, according to the mind and will of the same pontiffs, cannot be any longer considered a question open to discussion among theologians. Unquote. Bam! Bam! Yes, thank you, Michael Voris. That was Pope Pius Twelfth, Encyclical Humani Generis, 1950, paragraphs 18, 19, and 20. We've got that linked for you. So, this should be enough, but uh, if you would like more evidence for this position regarding the necessity of each Catholic to adhere to whatever is officially approved, decreed, or taught by the Apostolic See, we are also providing for you a link to the excellent essay by Thomas Droleski. If it is in the Acta Apostolice Sedis, it is official teaching. That's the uh, title of the essay. And uh, in this article... Uh, Droleski extensively quotes Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton on the matter, who, by the way, Mr. Salza, also knew a little bit about sacred theology. Okay, so we've got that link for you in the show notes. So really, the, the issue of infallibility has nothing to do with this. This is not about infallibility. It's about authority, because... We must adhere to what the church teaches, even if it is not taught infallibly, because our obligation to accept what the church, the Holy See, teaches, legislates, approves, enacts, determines, and so on, does not arise from its inability to be false, but from the church's divine commission and her right to complete obedience of her children." And this is wonderfully explained in the article we mentioned earlier, Must I Believe It?, by Canon Smith. One quote from that article, and then we'll move on. So this is Canon Smith speaking, quote, Herein lies the source of the obligation to believe what the church teaches. The church possesses the divine commission to teach, and hence there arises in the faithful a moral obligation to believe, which is founded ultimately not upon the infallibility of the church, but upon God's sovereign right to the submission and intellectual allegiance of his creatures. He that believeth shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Quote from Mark 16.16. 16. 
It is the God-given right of the church to teach, and therefore it is the bounden duty of the faithful to believe. The infallibility of the church does not, precisely as such, render belief obligatory. It renders her teaching divinely credible. What makes belief obligatory is her divine commission to teach. Unquote. And now back to John Salzo. It's funny, the Sede Bacantis even disagree with each other on why Vatican II was infallible. Some say the Contest will say because it was a gathering of the world's bishops in union with the Pope, it was an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium, and that's why everything has to be believed. Others say the Contest will say no, they didn't issue any extraordinary statements with a note of infallibility, but it's infallible by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Oh, look, say the Contest disagree with one another about Vatican II. Yeah, like that doesn't happen in Salza's church. Here you have Mr. Salza claiming that Vatican II contains heresy and other errors, which is something absolutely denied, for example, by Christopher Ferreira, and probably also by most indult clerics, who know that if that were the case, their goose would be cooked. Ferreira has always hid himself behind the word novelty. He only concedes that Vatican II contains novelties, but he refuses to say whether those novelties are true or false. Sometimes he'll say that we don't even know what they mean. Well, if we don't know what they mean, then why is he resisting them so vehemently? Anyway, regarding Vatican II, it really doesn't matter if any of it would meet the criteria of infallibility or not, because either way, it most certainly could not have come from a true pope, as it requires allegiance and submission to its glaring errors. In fact, each conciliar document was promulgated with a special formula, which was essentially the following. Now listen closely. Quote, each and all these items which are set forth in this document have met with the approval of the Council Fathers, and we, remember now this is Paul VI speaking, and we, by the apostolic power given us by Christ, together with the Venerable Fathers in the Holy Spirit, approve, decree, and establish it, and command, command, that what has thus been decided in the Council be promulgated for the glory of God. Unquote. If Paul VI was a true pope, that is what you would have to believe about each of the Vatican II documents. Does John Salza believe that? Chris Ferreira? John Veneri? Robert Sisko? <laughs> Fat chance. For a very informative and compelling essay, on whether Vatican II met the criteria for infallibility, if we assume Paul VI was a true pope, please see John Daly's essay, Did Vatican II Teach Infallibly? Did Vatican II Teach Infallibly by John Daly? It's linked on our homepage at tratcast.org. Returning now to John Salza, all of a sudden he starts drawing a distinction between ordinary and extraordinary counsel. Counsel, mind you, not magisterium, but counsel, which of course he doesn't try to prove or anything, and, and he couldn't because he just made it up. And then he continues like this. And so what we're left with 
is because it's coming from the magisterium, the authentic magisterium, we give it a religious observance. However, that is conditional. The theologians, Van Ork, Brother Barry, they all say that this religious ascent, number one, is not the ascent of faith. It's not on the authority of God revealing. It's on the authority of the church teaching. And because the church has not told us that we must submit to Vatican II with the ascent of faith, we have a religious observance which if those teachings are contrary to what the church has previously defined that must be believed with the ascent of faith, then we do not have to adhere to them. In fact, we are required then to reject them. That's the case with the novelties of Vatican II. Ah, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the crux. That is the heart of the matter. This last assertion of his, he did not and cannot prove. Let me, let me quote it to you again. These are the words of John Salza. Quote, If those teachings are contrary to what the church has previously defined that must be believed with the assent of faith, then we do not have to adhere to them. In fact, we are required then to reject them. Unquote. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the unproven and unprovable premise on which hinges the entire recognize and resist position. Notice that he does not even attempt to prove it. He made it up. Now, you might think, but wait, this follows from what he argued before about infallibility, but it does not. You see, it is one thing to say that the church can err in a particular matter that is not proposed infallibly. It is another thing, though, to say that the church can contradict her very own dogmas and then propose these contradictions, heresies actually, to the faithful for their submission, which each individual believer then needs to be sufficiently educated about and attentive and smart enough to weed out and reject at the peril of his soul. That is ludicrous, Mr. Sauls, a ludicrous. You're making the faithful who are the church taught into a higher authority than the magisterium, which is the church teaching. Now, just how much this nonsense spouted by Salza contradicts Catholic teaching, you can see in our blog post, Have the Gates of Hell Prevailed? And we're linking to that at tradcast.org. There are so many magisterial teachings on the authority and nature of the Holy See that contradict what Salza is saying here. I don't even know where to start. For example, consider this teaching of Pope Leo XIII from his apostolic letter Anum Ingressi, issued in 1902. Quote, It, meaning the Catholic Church, has preached the gospel and has defended it at the price of its blood and strong in the divine assistance and of that immortality which have been promised it, it makes no terms with error, but remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world and to the end of time and to protect it in its inviolable integrity. Unquote. Now, obviously, Pope Leo XIII had never heard of Salza's bizarre ideas. But you know what? Maybe we ought to update Pope Leo XIII's teaching in light of John Salza's theology. If we did that, Pope Leo XIII's teaching would sound like this. 
the church has preached the gospel on some occasions, and sometimes a false gospel, and those who defended her teaching at the price of their blood were only dying for her infallible pronouncements, since for the others they couldn't be sure it was even true. Fickle in the divine assistance, and of that immortality which have been promised it, it makes terms with error only sometimes, in which case we are reminded to check with our local tax lawyer or tune in to EWTN. The Church often remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world and to the end of time, and to protect it up to a point. For details, check with the Society of St. Pius X or go to johnsalza.com. So, in other words, according to John Salza, the Church is perfect except when she's not. She teaches the faith except when she doesn't. She's reliable in defending the faith except when she attacks and threatens it. Salza is saying that our Lord chose for his spouse not an immaculate bride, but a harlot who is faithful only sometimes. It's outrageous. It's grotesque. Frankly, it's idiotic. So, what we have here from Mr. Salza, deceptively presented to us in the wrapping paper of eloquent verbiage, is the idea that Holy Mother Church can feed heresy to her children, not just error even, but heresy, through her magisterium, as long as it's not presented under certain conditions that would be needed to make it infallible. This is outrageous. And Think about it. How is this all supposed to work anyway? You know, throughout most of the church's history, each individual believer had no way of knowing all these things that we know now. Most couldn't read, and those who could didn't exactly have a copy of Denzinger handy to flip through to determine whether the Holy See was currently teaching crap. I'm sorry to be so blunt about it, but that's essentially what we're being asked to believe here. Now, the funny thing is that, of course, today's Denzinger now includes Vatican II and the post-conciliar, you know, supposed popes and just the whole post-conciliar magisterium. So, so, hey, flipping through Denzinger, even that doesn't work anymore. At this point, I guess it's only the special SSPX or Salza Cisco approved versions of Denzinger that are acceptable. I mean, this is comedy hour, folks. This is comedy what John Salza is putting forth. Look, if a Catholic can no longer rely on Holy Mother Church to give him sound doctrine, infallible or not, well, then why in the world should he listen to a tax lawyer from Wisconsin or to the Society of St. Pius X, which, we might add, operates not simply without the authorization of the supposed Holy See, but against it? Has Mr. Salza forgotten that if the Holy See can teach error in non-infallible matters, so can the Society of St. Pius X, and so can he and anyone else? This recognize and resist position completely distorts and destroys the Catholic understanding of the papacy and the magisterium. Under this bizarre theology, the Church can no longer be lovingly trusted like a child has complete confidence and trust in his mother. 
No, now each believer must hold the church suspect in everything that doesn't meet the requirements for infallibility and must protect himself, so to speak, against her very teaching because it might consist of the most damnable errors that are a threat to the eternal salvation of one's soul. So much for he who heareth you heareth me. According to Salza, the Holy See basically needs a babysitter. <laughs> and I guess he and a few other self-appointed gatekeepers get to take that role. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to, at least in practice. See, these people don't believe in the papacy. They believe whatever they choose, whatever they, whatever they think is traditional. All the while verbally insisting, of course, that Francis is Pope. Now, this is not Catholicism. This is a mockery. In 1853, Pope Pius IX taught, quote, Religion itself can never totter and fall, while this chair, the chair of St. Peter, remains intact. The chair which rests on the rock, which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion, unquote. And that's the encyclical Intermultiplices, uh, paragraph 7, Pope Pius IX, 1853. Do these people believe this or not? Back in 2013, John Venneri declared in an article for the Catholic Family News that he would never allow Francis to teach religion to his children. Did you get that? Supposedly, Francis is definitely, absolutely the vicar of Christ, whose faith cannot fail and who keeps the gates of hell from prevailing against the church. But he's too much of a danger to the faith to teach catechism to the Venere kids. Get out of here. Like I've said, this is comedy. Comedy hour, clearly. Tratcast. Well, folks, we've come to the end of Tratcast 11, the first episode in the new year. We will continue very soon with our demolition of the John Salza interview and much more. Hey, why not subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so you can get it delivered as soon as it's released, every time free of charge. Also, tell your friends and family to check us out and give this informative podcast a try. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube, and you can subscribe to our exciting blog through RSS or by email, novosordowatch.org, novosordowatch.org, and tradcast.org. One final word to John Salza and Robert Sisko. If they think that with this book they've now published, True or False Pope, we are now going to cower in fear, they are sorely mistaken. What their book will accomplish is not the undoing of Sedevacantism. Instead, it will elicit the most comprehensive, systematic, and well-documented explanation and defense of the Sedevacantist position ever produced. And this is it for today. God bless you.
Trapcast. <laughs>